If you happen to be watching TV on the evening of September 5th, 1989, flipping through the channels, you might have seen the image of the White House flashing across your screen. Live from the Oval Office, President George Bush addresses the nation. The image cuts to President George H.W. Bush, the first President Bush. He's sitting at his desk, blue suit, red tie, white handkerchief peeking out of his left pocket. There's an awkward millisecond where he just stares at the camera like he's not sure the broadcast has begun. Then he speaks. Good evening. This is the first time since taking the oath of office that I felt an issue was so important, so threatening, that it warranted talking directly with you, the American people. It was Bush's very first televised address from the Oval Office since being elected president in 1988. So, a big deal. And there was one issue he wanted to talk about. Drugs. All of us agree that the gravest domestic threat facing our nation today is drugs. Mostly one drug. Cocaine, and in particular, crack. Crack, Bush says, is America's most serious problem. It's sapping our strength as a nation. As he talks, his hands are folded on his desk. He's looking straight into the camera. And then, 77 seconds in, Bush does this thing. He turns to his left, reaches under his desk, and pulls out this clear plastic bag full of white, chalky chunks. This, this is crack cocaine seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. There's a close-up of the baggie. You can just make out the word evidence printed on the top. And then he underlines the point of this baggie he's holding up and the fact that it came from just across the street from the White House. Drugs are a real and terribly dangerous threat to our neighborhoods, our friends, and our families. No one among us is out of harm's way. But the president said he was going to protect us from this threat with ambitious plans to transform the war on drugs, take it to new, unprecedented heights. He described the machinery he wanted to unleash in that effort. And it was all wrapped up in this one dramatic prop. In fact, if you talk to people who happened to see the speech that night, that's the thing they usually remember most. He was holding up a bag of crack and saying somebody was selling crack across the street from the White House. And he held up a bag of crack, a big bag too, I have to say, with this sort of white rocks and powderish substance in it. And he said, this was purchased just the other day in the park across the street from the White House. I remember the president holding up this little baggie of crack and saying they bought that across the street from the White House. Tracy Thompson was watching the speech at a beach house in South Carolina with a couple of friends. And their collective reaction was, what? Across the country in California, a guy named Craig Reinerman remembers calling up a friend. Did you see that? You know, we were both pretty astonished. But for Don Schatz, he was a teenager at the time and lived in one of the poorest parts of Washington, D.C., where crack felt like it really was everywhere. For Don, the idea that someone had sold it in the park across the street from the White House, something about that just didn't sound right. You know, nothing is impossible when it comes to drugs. But when you break it down, you really think about it, nobody sells crack in front of the White House. Nah, everything is in, not the White House, not nowhere downtown where they buying drugs, no. You know, so it was odd. And Don should know, because back then, across town, he was also selling crack. (laughs) 
Welcome to the uncertain hour, where the things we fight the most about are the things we know the least about. I'm Chrissy Clark, senior correspondent from Marketplace's Wealth and Poverty Desk, and this is a show that dives into the deep uncertainties of our time to make some sense of making it in America. Each season, we pick one issue that's surrounded by a lot of sound bites and talking points, but not a lot of basic understanding. And we go down the rabbit holes of history looking for clarity. This season, the issue we're tackling is drugs, drug epidemics, and how they ever end. The drug epidemic people think most about today and fight most about today is, of course, not crack, but opioids. And we're going to talk a lot more about opioids later in this series. But decades before the opioid epidemic, crack was the big drug crisis on everybody's lips. It seemed to have no end in sight. And yet, 30 years later, you don't hear so much about crack anymore. It's not on everybody's lips. So why? Like, what actually happened to crack? And what does that tell us about how our current drug epidemic might end? For the next few episodes, that's what we're going to look at. Through the story of this one baggie of crack that President George H.W. Bush held up one September night in 1989 for all the nation to see. And through the stories of some of the people who remember that moment, whose lives were touched by it in some way. Because that little baggie of crack, it contains multitudes. It wasn't just a dramatic prop for a speech. It was part of this seminal moment in the escalation of the war on drugs. The story of this baggie of crack starts in the White House back in 1989, but in all these different ways, it reverberates today. So let's get into it. And I should say, there is a swear word or two in this episode. So that park in front of the White House where the baggie of crack that Bush held up in his speech came from, it's called Lafayette Park. And here we are. I went there recently. It's lovely. A big green square, lots of benches, fountains, some statues of men on horses. Actually, just one man is on a horse. My producer has since pointed out to me the rest of the statues are standing. But regardless, this park is not at all a place that seems conducive to crack dealing. For one thing, there's a lot of tourists taking pictures, holding cameras. It's the place people go to take that iconic shot of the White House. And if all the tourists with potential surveillance tools hanging from their necks weren't enough to make this an inconvenient place to do a drug buy, there's also the issue of the guys in uniforms and badges donning the landscape. Here is a Secret Service agent who is getting his picture taken by tourists. Can we take our picture with you? You know, needless to say, there's a, a, a police presence because of where the park is. Michael Isakoff walked through Lafayette Park all the time back in 1989. He worked a few blocks away at the Washington Post. He was a reporter there, and he covered the president's speech about the baggie of crack. I was watching it on TV uh, and reporting on it because I was the drug reporter. Mike remembers watching the president hold up the baggie of crack that night, and his first thought was, It was a great prop, uh, a great way to get attention, to try to show this was a universal problem. This is something that's affecting all of us. It's even happening across the street from the White House. 
But then that list of reportery questions starts nagging on him. The who, what, when, where, how, and whys. For Mike, knowing what he knew about Lafayette Park, the constant police presence, the tourists, he kept coming back to this question. How did that crack come to be there? The president says it had been seized in a park across the street from the White House. That's not a natural place where you would um, expect to see drug dealing. Well, that's odd, and I wanted to know a lot more than the president was telling us that night. Mike started digging. One of the first calls he made was to the U.S. Park Police, who patrolled Lafayette Park. He asked him, have you had a lot of crack dealing in Lafayette Park? And the answer I got was no. We don't consider that a problem area. There's too much activity going on there for drug dealers. There's always a uniformed police presence there. In fact, the commander of criminal investigations told Mike there hadn't been any crack arrests in Lafayette Park ever. Until this one uh, that led to the crack that was in the president's speech. And that, and that got my attention. At this point, Mike's asking himself, if park officials only knew of one crack deal ever happening there, what were the odds it would happen just a few days before a highly anticipated speech where the president just happened to be unveiling his anti-drug strategy and that DEA agents would just happen to be there? So Mike starts calling his sources at DEA. He talks to William McMullen, the assistant special agent in charge of the Washington, D.C. field office who told me this remarkable story. And the story McMullen told him was this. A few days before the president's speech, McMullen had gotten a call from the assistant to the head of the DEA with a question. Do you have anything going on around the White House, was the uh, quote that was related to me. Uh, and the, uh, the DEA guy, uh, McMullen, who gets the call, says, well, there isn't really uh, a lot of crack dealing around the White House. McMullen explained there were plenty of other parts of D.C. where there was a lot of crack dealing going on. The drugs seemed to be flooding the city's poorest neighborhoods at the time, and the DEA was setting up some undercover buys several blocks away. And uh, what he got was any possibility of you moving down to the White House. Quote, The president wants to show it could be bought anywhere, McMullen says the head of the DEA's assistant told him, according to Mike Isakoff's reporting. That the White House speechwriters had written this line into the president's speech and came up with the idea of using a bag of crack as a prop. And could DEA oblige by doing a drug bust around the White House? They just assumed that, oh, DA must make these busts all the time. There must be crack dealing all over the place. Uh, certainly that's the way the story seemed to be playing at the time in the media. And, you know, there came the small problem of how are we going to get the crack? It was left up to the sort of underlings at DEA to figure that out. What is going through your mind as you are hearing these these pieces of the story? Wow. <laughs> so this was all a setup, uh, is what I'm thinking. And in fact, it was. The details of the setup that Mike Isakoff proceeded to dig up, the intricate choreography involved, it was pretty bonkers. 
An undercover DEA agent reached out to an informant he'd been working with, saying he was trying to set up a crack deal with someone in Lafayette Park. The informant suggested an acquaintance of his, this kid. A teenager who lived in another part of Washington, northeast Washington, miles away from the White House. In a poor neighborhood where there actually was a lot of crack dealing going on. The kid got a call, was told someone wanted to buy some crack from him, and wanted to make the buy in Lafayette Park. But according to Mike Isikoff's sources, the kid had never heard of Lafayette Park. It's across the street from the White House, he was told. And the kid was like, Where the fuck is the White House? He had no idea where they wanted this drug buy to be. He had no idea of even how to get to Lafayette Park. Mike Isikoff says William McMullen, the DEA agent he spoke to, sounded kind of proud of the lengths they'd gone to to get the kid to the White House. Quote, We had to manipulate him to get him down there. It wasn't easy. We tried to get in touch with various people at the DEA who were involved with this story. We couldn't reach some of them. We did reach the guy who was the head of the DEA at the time, but he said he couldn't remember the circumstances of how the Lafayette Park deal went down. But I did talk to this guy. I had the idea of the president holding up a bag of crack cocaine taken from inventory as close to the White House as you could find it. Mark Davis was the White House speechwriter assigned to write the national drug address that Bush gave. Mark says there was a lot riding on it. It was Bush's first time directly speaking to the nation as president. He was still trying to climb out of Ronald Reagan's technicolor shadow, still trying to define his presidency. So I stepped back and looked at this and thought, well, this needs something very dramatic. It needs something to really pull it out. Mark thought having the president hold up this eye-catching prop, this baggie of crack, would be the perfect touch. And it would be nice if they could find a bag that was seized somewhere close to the White House. It would be a nice rhetorical flourish. And why? Why was that part important, the closeness to the White House? We felt that it would bring it home to every American who's been a tourist and walked by the White House to think that this is happening right here in your nation's capital. If it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. It was late September, a couple weeks after the president had delivered his speech, that the Washington Post ran Mike Isikoff's article exposing the backstory of the baggie of crack. It was on the front page. Headline, Drug Buy Set Up for Bush Speech. DEA lured seller to Lafayette Park. From there, the media was all over this story of a president caught manufacturing reality. To the strange story of that bag of crack Mr. Bush held up during his anti-drug speech to the nation earlier this month. The crack, he said, had been seized in a drug deal right near the White House. In his speech, the president implied that drugs were easily available, even in Lafayette Park. But in fact, agents had to lure a suspect from the other side of Washington in order to make the buy. The sale was real, but the location was a fake. Mr. Bush's staff wanted to buy some crack near the White House to make a dramatic point on TV, but no dealer could be found. The day the story came out, President Bush was doing a press-op at a family tree farm in Kennebunkport, Maine. He seemed to be blissfully unaware of the media blowback he was about to get. Uh, wildlife does flourish out here. We can show you all kinds of signs from it. Um, A farmer was handing him this little wooden man attached to some kind of pinwheel, a souvenir. A whirligig from Maine. And then a reporter from the press pool butts in. Mr. President, what do you have to say about the drug bust the DEA engineered for your prop of the drug speech? 
Without a beat, President Bush answers. I think it was great because it sent a message to the United States that even across from the White House, they're selling, they can sell drugs. A gaggle of reporters jumps in. But the park police say there's usually no drug activity there. Did you manipulate the American people into thinking there was a serious problem in front of the White House? Did you ask for the bag of crack for the speech? And Bush owns it. I said I'd like to have something from that vicinity to show that it can happen anywhere. Absolutely. And that's what ha- that's what they gave me, and they told me where they parked this guy. The tree farmers cut the interrogation short. Excuse me, Mr. President. I think we're running short on our allotted time. Someone handed the president his whirly gig. But there was more drubbing to come for his drug speech and the baggie of crack he held up. And the drug problem. Bigger than ever. A week after the story broke about the choreographed crack buy in front of the White House, comedian Dana Carvey was on the stage of Saturday Night Live with a parody of it, which didn't take much. Just like the president, he reached under his desk and pulled out a clear plastic bag, not even that much bigger than the one Bush had pulled out, full of white chalky chunks. This is, this is cocaine crack. I'll tell you something, this crack was bought right here in the White House, three feet from this desk. Drug problem worse than we ever thought. Marijuana being grown in the Rose Garden. <laughs> Millie, the bush dog, bringing in crack pipe from the South Lawn. It's bad, bad. And the parodies, the press scrutiny, it all did start to worry folks in the Bush administration. To say I was, oh, upset <laughs> would have been an understatement. That's David Demarest, the White House communications director under Bush. David says the White House plan was never supposed to be, let's ask the DEA to set up a special drug buy near the White House just for the speech. Mark Davis, the speechwriter who had the idea for the prop in the first place, makes the same claim. Don't do anything special for us. I said this, and I know David said this, do not do anything on our behalf. Take this out of inventory. Of course, that's not what happened. They did not just take the crack from some inventory of drug busts they'd already done. Whether it was a misguided request from the White House or a game of telephone or some overeager person at the DEA, in the end, there was a special drug buy set up just for the speech. And David Demarest, White House communications director, says when that fact came out publicly, he was not happy. Not just because the whole story became a punchline on Saturday Night Live. Frankly, the real reason I was upset was it was a big distraction from the message that we were trying to get across. And I want to spend a little time talking about that message they were trying to get across. I want you to understand the full weight of it, which means you need to understand how America was thinking about drugs in September of 1989 when President Bush gave that speech. It's very different from where we are today, so it needs some background. By September 1989, it had been almost two decades since Richard Nixon first declared a, quote, war on drugs. Public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. And yet, despite Nixon's hawkish rhetoric, 
The 70s were overall actually a pretty dovish time for federal drug policy. In fact, Nixon put more money into drug treatment than arresting drug dealers. At the same time, Congress lowered federal penalties for drug trafficking, and Jimmy Carter talked about decriminalizing marijuana. By the early 1980s, though, the pendulum was swinging the other way. The mood toward drugs is changing in this country, and the momentum is with us. President Reagan relaunched the war on drugs while he was in office. We've taken down the surrender flag and run up the battle flag, and we're going to win the war on drugs. He was mostly focused on international cocaine cartels. Of course, there was Nancy Reagan and Just Say No. 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 And by the late 80s, the public perception was that America's drug problem was only getting worse. And there was a new clear culprit. Crack. This is the typical tiny bottle for the new illegal drug of choice in America, crack. Crack wasn't even mentioned in the national media until 1985. But by the late 80s, the news was full of stories like these. For many Americans, crack has crystallized a national perception of a growing drug abuse epidemic. There's a new drug called crack out there that's more addicting than cocaine. Every five minutes, a baby is born in the United States exposed to crack. A place free of the crime and violence of the big cities until the arrival of crack. Police say drug laws are too lenient. Most dealers are back on the street soon after they're arrested. 48 hours on crack street. It could be anybody's street. It was a scary time. In a national poll that periodically asks Americans what they see as the most important problem facing the country, by the spring of 1989, the top response was... Not jobs, not the economy, not the issue of war and peace. But... Drug abuse is the nation's leading overall concern right now. So when George H.W. Bush sat at his desk in the Oval Office in September of 1989 to make his first live address to the nation, drugs seemed like an issue worth staking a claim building a reputation on. And so the point of his speech, the big message he was trying to convey to the country, was that under his leadership, the war on drugs, especially on crack, was going to get even tougher than it had ever been. Tough on drug criminals. Much tougher than we are now. Tougher federal laws. Tougher penalties. Beef up law enforcement. Toughen sentences. Build new prison space. Stiffer bail. And for the drug kingpins, the death penalty. It's sort of jarring to hear these words today. Sure, some people say things like this, but a lot of politicians on both sides of the aisle now agree we have too many people behind bars. And that's partly because of these tougher drug policies that Bush championed in the late 80s. Since 1980, our federal prison population has grown by 639%. Today, nearly half those inmates are in for drug offenses. So, yeah, mass incarceration from the war on drugs has become a bipartisan concern. Today. But back in 1989, it was all about making incarceration more massive. And the policies Bush launched with his baggie of crack speech were crucial to that push. Listen to what he was calling for that night. We need more prisons, more jails, more courts, more prosecutors. So tonight I'm requesting altogether an almost billion-and-a-half-dollar increase in drug-related federal spending on law enforcement. One newspaper called his speech a Rambo-style call to arms. I know. 
George H.W. Bush. Not necessarily the first drug warrior that comes to mind. But it's true. He was one of history's toughest. Though, I should point out, it wasn't just Republicans like Bush who were gung-ho on the war on drugs back then. By this moment in the 80s, Republicans and Democrats were in the middle of a kind of arms race in the war on drugs. Each party wanted to be the toughest party. And this may surprise you, but when Bush came into office in 1989, it was not Republicans who seemed to be winning the competition. A few years before, in the run-up to the midterm elections of 1986, it was Democrats in Congress, white and black ones, who spearheaded sweeping anti-drug legislation, laws that established new mandatory minimum penalties for drugs, major funding for prisons. The Democratic-controlled House of Representatives put together a comprehensive anti-drug package in a matter of weeks so that Democrats could campaign as the anti-drug fighters and take this into the November election. Eric Sterling was a Democratic staffer for the U.S. House of Representatives at the time. He was involved in writing key parts of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986. Intimately, it came out of my word processor in room 207 in the Cannon House office building. Eric says one of the things that prompted Democrats to draft the anti-drug law that summer of 1986 was the death of a basketball star named Len Bias. He had it all. Len Bias was an all-American basketball star, the University of Maryland's leading scorer. He had speed. His grace was acrobatic. He was drafted this week by the champion Boston Celtics. He had it all until this morning when his heart gave out and he died. His death was the pivotal event. He was known as a clean-cut guy. He was a gifted athlete, extremely well-known to members of Congress. How such a young man would die so suddenly, of course, immediately led to suspicion and rumors and uh, toxicology reports being leaked. There are reports that traces of cocaine were found in Bias's system. A grand jury will begin hearing testimony about the circumstances surrounding the death of Lynn Bias, a death caused by cocaine intoxication. Soon, news stories came out saying it wasn't just cocaine, but crack cocaine that had killed Len Bias. It turned out those news stories were wrong. It was later determined that Bias had used powder cocaine, not crack. But Eric Sterling says the crack rumors took hold, and it all helped fuel the fear around drugs in general and crack in particular. And so in the subcommittee on crime where I was assigned, the Republicans got a couple of Democrats to agree that there should be mandatory minimum sentences, that we should really be cracking down on important drug dealers. And that legislation developed very, very hastily without any real background. In the nine years I worked for the Congress, I'd never been involved in such a hasty, half-baked legislative process. When Congress started writing the anti-drug legislation, Eric Sterling's main job was to figure out what amounts of what drugs would trigger different mandatory minimum penalties. This is when the notorious sentencing disparity between powder and crack cocaine got written into law and the racial disparities that came along with it, since people convicted of crack cocaine offenses were mostly black, while people who were busted for powder cocaine were mostly white. And if you got caught with five grams of crack, a little more than a teaspoon's worth, 
it would automatically get you the same sentence as getting caught with 100 times that amount of powder cocaine. In both cases, the sentence would be five years in prison. Eric says the push to get a tough-sounding bill out the door was so rushed that, in retrospect, he's actually embarrassed by the numbers and measurements he helped Congress come up with. Members of Congress, uh, like many of us, are not particularly fluent in the metric system. If it says five grams, you know, is let's say is a gram, is, that a, is a kilogram bigger than a milligram or, you know, how many milligrams, you know, like, it doesn't matter. No sense. What is just? What are these quantities? This was it's like, huh? What? Yeah. OK. Wham. Bam. Done. Don't bother us with the details. I'm running for re-election. Let's just get something that sounds tough out the door, Eric says. That was the prevailing attitude back then on both sides of the aisle. Who could push for the longest mandatory minimum sentences, the most prison spending? It felt like a bidding war. You know, if there's going to be $100 million for more prison construction, then the other side would say, you know, Mr. Chairman, I move to strike $100 million and insert $200 million. You know, and then the other side would say, you know, Mr. Chairman, I move to amend that and strike, you know, $400 million. By the time the legislation passed, Eric says the process had left him with a growing sense of disgust. Pretty soon afterward, he left government, started an organization focused on undoing the harsh war on drugs policies he helped make. But that was a lonely effort at first. Someone else I talked to described it like this. Conversations around drugs in the mid to late 80s were the sound of one hand clapping. There was essentially no opposition party. Almost everyone was pushing in the same direction. Tougher, stiffer, harsher. Which brings us back to the baggie of crack speech that Bush gave in September of 1989, a few months after he'd become president. It was now his turn to up the ante, and he presented his opening bid, his policy goals, in that speech. This was a zero-tolerance policy. That's Mark Davis again, the speechwriter who drafted the drug address, mostly based on talking points from the White House drug czar's office. Everyone, from the user to the seller to the drug kingpin to the countries behind this, there would be absolutely no slack and no give. It was going to be a very harsh, bright line that was being laid down for drugs like crack cocaine. And um, it was from that policy decision that I crafted words that were stark, clear, uncompromising. The president did propose some funding increases for treatment and drug prevention in his speech. But his message was that the real money should go toward arresting and jailing the people supplying the drugs. When you add it all up, the big plan that Bush proposed in his September 1989 drug speech involved almost $8 billion to fight drugs that coming year. At the time, Bush called it the largest increase in history. He wanted the lion's share, 70% of it, focused on law enforcement. So the deeper message of Bush's baggie of crack speech was to show how much tougher and more resource intensive his war on drugs was going to be. The calculus of the time was that you could earn serious political points by reassuring the average American voter that you were protecting them from the terrifying threat of crack. And that's where the prop, the baggie of crack, came in to reinforce this point. As President Bush told reporters himself at the tree farm in Maine, he held up that baggie of crack and said it was purchased right in front of the White House for one reason. To show that it can happen anywhere. Absolutely. 
It was visual proof that crack was affecting neighborhoods across the country. No one among us is out of harm's way. But there was a problem with the bigger point Bush was trying to make here. Because by the time he gave his speech in September of 1989, it was becoming clear that the crack problem was not that widespread. And it was not growing. And the Bush administration, his speechwriters, his drug czar, they had access to plenty of data demonstrating that. In fact, I found that data in their own archives. That's coming up after a break. Back in 1989, as George H.W. Bush was holding up that baggie of crack, as he was announcing that it came from across the street from the White House, as he was warning that no one was out of harm's way, Craig Reinerman was listening to that speech and thinking, huh? The idea that, that it's a plague that's sweeping all sectors of society, this was never true. Craig's a professor emeritus of sociology and legal studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and one of the editors of the book Crack in America. He told me in the 80s, there was very little evidence to suggest crack addiction was spreading to every corner of America. In fact, when a lot of news reports first started making that claim, there were basically no national statistics on crack use at all. The National Institute on Drug Abuse, the main body that compiles data on drug use, mostly through surveys, they didn't even start publishing data about crack use until 1986. If you look at the charts from before then, it just says... N.A. for the column on crack. No statistics. Though that absence of hard data didn't stop the media from quoting health experts and government officials who said crack was everywhere. Still, by 1989, the year Bush held up that baggie of crack, the government was actually collecting statistics. And the numbers told a different story from the recent anecdotes and newspaper headlines. In the few years that crack use had been tracked nationally, Data showed that crack use had already peaked and was on the decline by 1989. That August, the percentage of household survey respondents who reported using crack in the past year was just half of 1%. For context, in 2016, the percentage who reported abusing opioids in the past year was almost 10 times that rate, 4.4%. Craig says compared to that, half of 1% reporting they used crack, that's tiny. Very small, vanishingly small percentage of the population. And, you know, the myths that were spread about it being instantly and inevitably addicting, even at the time, they knew that 80 plus percent, closer to 90 percent of people who'd ever tried it hadn't continued to use it. There were some alarming statistics about the people who had continued to use crack, stats that people at the White House might have seen. The data showed that a growing number of crack users were using it more frequently. Their use was getting more intense. But those people weren't really everywhere, in parks near the White House or suburban neighborhoods. Crack was concentrated among a small group of people. It didn't spread in the same way that was being claimed. In raw numbers, there were more white than black Americans using crack, which makes sense because there are way more whites in America. But in terms of the hardest hit demographics... In 1988, the per capita rate of black Americans who reported smoking crack in the past year in the household survey was almost three times higher than the rate for whites. Crack use was also more prevalent among unemployed people and less educated people. So that's who crack was hurting the most. Not to say that there couldn't be some random kid from picket fence family that gets caught up in all this. That, that happens, certainly. Certainly. 
but it didn't spread to Westchester County as the New York Times confidently predicted it was doing. It just didn't happen. It, it, it's a drug and a high that appeals to those who have virtually nothing left to lose and not too many other people. If you look at the aggregate statistics, overwhelmingly it's the most impoverished and vulnerable parts of the population. And I'll say this again. All this information was available by the time Bush gave his baggie of crack speech. In fact, I looked through the Bush archives, and I found many of these statistics on crack use and how it was overall on the decline in the briefing memos that the National Institute on Drug Abuse gave the White House, as Mark Davis and David Demarest were working on the speech. But that is not what the White House chose to emphasize. And if you look at the evolution of the speech, which I did because I got obsessed, if you look at the drafts, you can see how the good news about drug use overall in America, that it's on the decline, that it's not widespread, this news gets buried as the speech drafts progress. In early drafts, the speech starts with the good news. There's a sentence about how, according to a recent federal survey, the number of Americans using any illegal drug has declined by 37%. But by the final draft, that information has almost disappeared. The numbers are fuzzier, and they're several paragraphs in, after Bush has held up the baggie of crack. And the good news is followed by a sentence about how the bad news about crack overshadows the good. But as much comfort as we can draw from these dramatic reductions, there is also bad news, very bad news. In the final speech, Bush breezes past the data on how cocaine use is actually down in America. In spite of the fact that overall cocaine use is down, frequent use has almost doubled in the last few years. And that's why habitual cocaine users, especially crack users, are the most pressing immediate drug problem. You can almost hear the actual evidence flickering away under a gust of projections and assumptions. What all this amounts to is that Bush's speech did not paint the crack problem as something that was seemingly getting better, even though it was. Bush's speech did not paint the crack problem as something that was doing particular harm to certain vulnerable communities, even though it was. Instead, it led with the baggie of crack found in front of the White House and all the misconceptions packed into it. If you just think of it as theater, it was masterful. If you think about it as a basis for, for public opinion and public policy, it was a disaster. That's sociologist Craig Reinerman again. You get this sort of funhouse mirror snowball kind of effect where the problem gets magnified and harsh draconian solutions get justified. Craig says it's a classic political feedback loop. A president using his pulpit to stoke public fear in something, exaggerating or distorting a problem that he could then appear to be saving us from. By holding up the baggie of crack, telling us no one was out of harm's way, Bush could whip up more fear in the public, fear that he could then get credit for addressing. Not surprisingly, high-level officials in the Bush White House do not describe their thinking like that. David Demarest, Bush's communications director, says regardless of where the harms of crack were most concentrated, he believed then, and believes now, that at its height, crack should have been seen as a universal problem. I know there were plenty of anecdotes at the time that this was everywhere. 
that, you know, there were the suburban housewife that was, you know, doing crack or the, you know, the assembly line worker doing crack. You know, how much hard data was there at the time? I don't recall. David says it's possible the Bush White House painted the crack problem with too broad a brush and that it really was mostly affecting certain neighborhood pockets. But even so... Even if it is in pockets, and some of those pockets might have been large pockets, that affects the society as a whole. If the inner city is being ravaged by something like a crack epidemic, that should be a concern to the entire country. It doesn't mean that you falsify the narrative and make it, well, in every household there's a crack problem. But I think because there were probably anecdotes that this kind of use was more ubiquitous than that, you know, the narrative of this could happen in your community too is a valid one. And in the end, that narrative stuck, despite what David Demarest and others in the White House had feared. Sure, they worried the expose about the White House baggie of crack set up could pull the rug out from underneath their larger message about why America needed to get even tougher on the war on drugs. And frankly, looking back now, you can imagine an alternate reality where this could have been a moment of reckoning, where the law enforcement tough-on-crime approach to drugs that was being cemented 30 years ago could have gone another way. The American public, the media, could have responded to this hole in the White House's narrative by questioning whether maybe we were misunderstanding the nature of the crack epidemic altogether. We could have taken a hard look at the data thought hard about who crack was hurting most and how we should try to help. It could have been a moment like that. A warning was yelled. But nobody listened. And 30 years later, we're still dealing with the consequences. In fact, Bush got even more stepped-up funding than he'd asked for, for the law enforcement side of the war on drugs. President Bush tonight accepted changes in funding and emphasis of his version of a plan to fight the drug abuse plague. The endorsement is for a Senate compromise plan that would, among other things, provide almost a billion dollars more in resources than Mr. Bush originally asked and cut a wide range of other federal programs to pay for it. The plan was to move money from things like public housing and immigrant medical services to pay for it. And by late September in the weeks after Bush had made the baggie of crack address, there was another round of that polling that asked Americans what was the biggest threat facing the nation. Drugs was still the top concern. Earlier that spring, a quarter of respondents gave that answer. After Bush's drug speech, it jumped to almost two-thirds. And by the end of Bush's time in office, his administration had spent a whopping $45 billion on anti-drug efforts, more than Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Reagan spent during their administrations combined. More than two-thirds of the money Bush spent went to law enforcement. In other words, the even tougher war on drugs strategy that Bush laid out and justified in his baggie of crack speech, it came to pass. One guy I talked to who worked on the speech put it to me this way. This was Edward McNally, a White House speechwriter and federal prosecutor who specialized in drug cases at the time. He says, the backstory of the baggie of crack? Eh. It certainly didn't derail or change the direction of or diminish the true progress or success of the so-called war on drugs. Really, the, the whole thing was, an, in retrospect, it's a footnote. At least... 
a footnote for the White House and our collective memories. But there were plenty of people that this was not a footnote for, including the teenager who got charged with selling that baggie of crack in front of the White House. I could see um, my teammates huddled around and conversing about something, and I was like, what's up, what's up? They was like, you heard about Keith? Keith Jackson. What happened to that teenager, and a lot of other people like him, that's coming up on the next episode. That's it for this episode of The Uncertain Hour. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next time with more stories about the things we fight a lot about, but usually know just a little about. You won't have to wait for the next part of this story. We'll be back in your feed tomorrow, March 22nd, with another new episode. After that, we'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. This episode of The Uncertain Hour was reported by me, Chrissy Clark. The Uncertain Hour is produced by me and Caitlin Esch, along with associate producer Peter Balanon-Rosen, production assistant Annie Reese, and digital producer Tony Wagner. Mixing and sound design by Jake Gorski. Additional production help from Lyra Smith. Our podcast is edited by the incredible Catherine Winter. Sitara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. Special thanks to Nancy Fargali, who helped bring this podcast into the world. Thanks to the George H.W. Bush Presidential Library Center and the Vanderbilt Television News Archive for providing some of the archival footage you heard in this episode. For more of The Uncertain Hour, or if you want to let us know what you think, find us on Instagram and Facebook. We're Marketplace APM. On uncertainhour.org, you can find photos of a lot of the people you heard from this episode, drafts of Bush's baggie of crack speech, and pictures of the park across the street from the White House where undercover agents bought that crack. <laughs>